Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. It makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. The Georgia Supreme Court said many years ago that the office of sheriff carries with it the duty. I'm the sheriff with the duty to protect this community. I've spent most of my life inside the criminal justice system in one capacity or another. And along the way, I've learned some truths. And this podcast will take you inside the system to bring you these truths, the good, the bad, and yes, even the uncomfortable truths. Practically everybody in the system is sworn to one oath or another. I've lost count of all the oaths I've taken and the things I've been sworn to do. But imagine you're a sheriff, an elected sheriff. You're sworn to not only uphold the law, but to get justice. Justice and answers. Answers for your community. Justice for victims. But despite your very best efforts, justice eludes you. Answers elude you. In this episode, we explore this issue in the context of the Lake Oconee murders. I live in Atlanta, and I remember very well the day back in May of 2014 when some really bad news broke. An elderly retired couple, Russell and Shirley Dermond, had been murdered. 
the details of it were odd enough that this couple living in this gated community, a wealthy couple um, with no apparent enemies or anything that had been brutally murdered, and then once you looked more into it and found out more details, it just became more and more of a, of a mystery. People were just mystified. How did any? How did this happen? How did anyone even get inside the community? You know, who would want to kill them? I mean, they were a retired couple. I mean, they were in their 80s. I think there was just a lot of speculation going on amongst uh, neighbors in the town. I mean, this is a small community. You know, it was such a bizarre crime that people's minds kind of, you know, wandered to the extreme as far as uh, trying to figure out what may have been the cause. This is Christian Boone, a reporter for the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. For the past three years, Christian has covered this case heavily, keeping it in the public's eye as much as he possibly could. Inevitably, with no new leads to follow, the case has grown cold and its media coverage has become scarce. But to Christian, this case has never really left his mind. So I reached out to him because I wanted to know how this case compared in terms of its unusualness to all the others that he's covered over the years. I put it at the top because there's no, you know, there seems to be no explanation for it. And there's just so many things about the actual murder that don't add up. You know, when you're trying to find an explanation or, or any kind of motive, you keep hitting a dead end because was it robbery? Well, no, nothing was stolen. You know, and then this, the cleanliness of, of the murder, at least parts of it. Is it professional? Well, it seems that way, but then there's other parts of it which seem, you know, kind of haphazard. It, it seems like someone was trying to send a message, but to whom and for, for what reason is, is what we still don't know. Reynolds Plantation is a very exclusive uh, community. It's a lot of retirees, a lot of people. I mean, you got to have money to live there. But it's sort of nestled into a small town of Eatonton, which kind of surrounds it or, or is nearby. It's very quiet. I mean, few, little, very little crime there. Barely any, any crime at all happens. I mean, there's crime, but, I mean, you don't have a lot of murders or certainly and, you know, a lot of violent crime. And, I mean, a lot of times, you know, we'll cover these things. We'll, we'll have a good idea of what happened or at least some sense of who is at least suspected. In this one, there was no, there was really nowhere to start. And part of this is plays to the fact that no one knew what had happened. I mean, there was no ransom note or anything like that. And that led a lot of, I mean, I don't know if panic's the right word, but a lot of people were, you know, justifiably scared as, you know, these people are obviously on the loose. What are they after? I mean, what, what is their motive here? I mean, are these just random thrill killers or are they, you know, something else? This case was different in that the sheriff, Sheriff Howard Sills, is about as media-friendly as you can get. Like, he throws it all out there. He'll tell you, if I don't have anything, I don't have anything. He's unique in that aspect. The problem is it's sort of hard to, to advance the story because, I, really, the coverage that's been going on after, I guess, about the first six months uh, has been anniversary stories. It's been three years. We still don't know what happened. I mean, I've written a few in the, in the interim where there's been some, you know, some, there was a crime in New York that was similar, and maybe this is there can be some connection made. But reporting on substantial leads or or anything that may you know advance the story, advance the investigation itself, has really been hard. Somebody knows something. Somebody saw something. They may not have known what they saw, but you also have to keep in mind too. You know there are a lot of crimes that go unsolved, and the more time passes, the less likely this is to get solved. Keeping it in the public's attention as much as you can is sort of the best bet to finally get an answer.
The Putnam County Sheriff's Office is trying to find a missing woman whose husband was found murdered this morning. They're trying to locate 87-year-old Shirley Dermott. They believe that she might be the victim of a kidnapping. Investigators were called to the Great Waters community on Lake Oconee in Putnam County this morning. They were called after friends went in to check on the Dermans and found 88-year-old Russell Dermott dead. Shirley Derman is 5 feet 2 inches tall and 148 pounds with gray hair and blue eyes. They believe that she was possibly abducted. They think that the crime happened between Friday and Sunday. If you've got any information, you can call the Putnam County Sheriff's Office at 706-485-8585. On May the 6th, 2014, 88-year-old Russell Derman was found beheaded in the garage of his home on Lake Oconee. Russell Derman's head was nowhere to be found, and his wife, 87-year-old Shirley Derman, she also was nowhere to be found. A massive search for Shirley Derman was underway, operating under the pretense that she may have been abducted. Hope dwindled for Shirley's safe return as the days went on, and on May the 16th of 2014, 10 days after police discovered Russell Derman's decapitated body in the garage of his own home, two fishermen found the body of Shirley Derman floating in the water of Lake Oconee, about six miles away from the Derman's residence. A fisherman reportedly found the body in Lake Oconee, several miles from her home in the Great Waters community. Law enforcement was now officially working a double homicide case. This was not your ordinary double homicide case. This was an act of savagery. The Dermans lived in the upscale community of Great Waters on Lake Oconee in central Georgia, about 70 miles east of Atlanta. The surrounding area contains a unique blend of indigenous residents, ranging from lower to middle class and an affluent population of retirees and vacation homes for the wealthy. Lake Oconee spans nearly 30 miles across three different counties with 374 miles of shoreline and a surface area of over 18,000 acres. The lake was built originally by Georgia Power in 1979, and the lake now serves as a popular getaway destination for tourists. The lake has nearly a dozen boat marinas and several high-end golf courses. The Dermans lived in Putnam County, a quiet and reserved community of only about 20,000 residents. In such a remote place, in what's regarded as a safe and relatively affluent area, how does a wealthy retired couple become the victims of a brutal and savage double murder? That's a question that Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills would really like to know. Howard Sills was and still is in charge of this case. He's worked it tirelessly for the past three years since the day they received the 911 call. Sheriff Sills has a track record that's, well, more than impressive. He's solved every homicide case he's worked on in the past 30 years, except this one. You've got to wonder, what does it feel like to have such a successful career in law enforcement, solving crimes for your community, and then to become part of one of the biggest unsolved murder cases in the history of the entire state of Georgia. I called up Sheriff Sills to ask him that very question. His answer? Find out after a quick word from our sponsors. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Howard Seals. Sheriff Seals, this is Philip Holloway from the Sworn Podcast. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Uh, Thanks for calling. Uh, sheriff, if we can just start, talk a little bit about you. Uh, how long have you been the sheriff there in Putnam County? Uh, let's see, 20 years and uh, almost uh, five months. <laughs> yeah, this is still a small community. I've only 
what if I was fully staffed, I might have about 70 personnel, but I have uh, always handled all the homicides uh, personally. And I say that, I mean I directed the investigation. I don't mean I worked every minute of it myself. I'm not saying that at all, but, uh, but uh, yeah, and I still do that, and I hope I, we're still small enough that I can do that. And I've had... Uh, I'm not trying to brag, but I'm sure they told you I've been fairly successful over the years, too. Well, and I'm sure that if there's a case that you're unsuccessful with, that has to affect you personally. Yeah, it is the most troubling case of, of my career, which has been a very long career. And it's uh, I, quite candidly, it's kind of embarrassing to some extent. And it's uh, you question your... You know, I find myself questioning myself all the time. What have I not done or what did I do wrong or, you know, that type of thing. When you know, This is really the only homicide case I've ever been uh, responsible that I was not successful. What can you tell us about the Dermans? The Dermans, uh, I did not know the Dermans. Now, don't get me wrong. I probably know more people in Putnam County than any other individual in Putnam County, but... They had retired here uh, after having a, a successful uh, chain of uh, fast food restaurants in uh, Metro Atlanta. Had uh, retired here in 2004 and built a home in the Great Waters section of Reynolds Plantation. Reynolds Plantation is uh, in, in both Green and Putnam counties, but the, the part that's in Putnam is called uh, Great Waters and had retired uh, and had lived here quite decently for a decade. Uh, Mr. Derman was 88 and Mrs. Derman was 87. They had three adult children, uh, one who lived in Asheville, who lives still in Asheville, North Carolina, a daughter, uh, one son that lives over uh, near Panama City in Florida, and another son that lives in the uh, Jacksonville, Florida area. What exactly did your office respond to that morning in May of 2014? We had a call that bodies, uh, what originally came out on the radio was bodies had been, uh, multiple bodies had been found in a house in, uh, in Great Waters. I, and I actually was the uh, second unit on the scene. And when I say second unit, I mean the first unit was 50 yards in front of me. Uh, and, uh, uh, what had happened, the Kentucky Derby was on May the 3rd, which is the day we think the crimes occurred. And uh, the Dermans were supposed to go to a Kentucky Derby party during the Derby there within uh, Reynolds community, within Great Waters itself. Uh, and all their friends had you know, expected them to be there, and they didn't show up. Uh, but, I mean, nobody was alarmed at that juncture. Uh, and then on Sunday and Monday, uh, their friends had called them. Nobody answered the phone. So finally on Tuesday morning, uh, some of their friends went over. Uh, this was not a next-door neighbor, but within the gated uh, Great Waters area. Uh, finally went over to the house to see, make sure everything was okay. And, see if, and uh, upon ent- entering the house, uh, well, not immediately, but after walking through the house a while, they discovered Mr. Derman's body uh, in the garage. And uh, he, he's the body uh, had been decapitated and 
obviously this uh, alarmed them, to say the least. Where was Mr. Derman's head? We don't know. Uh, whoever did this took it with him. It was a very clean cut down near the, uh, just right about the collar area. I don't mean to say surgical, but it was a very clean, very clean cut with uh, a knife of some sort that uh, uh, just right about the collar. If you had a t-shirt on it would, uh, and used the t-shirt collar as a line, I don't mean it's that exact now, but you know it was a fairly smooth cut and completely removed. The body was lying on the floor in the back of the garage. Uh, uh, the people who found the body, they opened the door to the garage from that vantage point. You couldn't even see the body. You actually had to go down some steps to see it. And that's basically all we saw at that home. There was no sign of forced entry. There was a house, uh, with the exception of a few odds and ends in the kitchen. Uh, the bed was unmade in the bedroom. Other than that, the house uh, was an immaculate condition, almost like staged, you know, by a real estate company or something almost. Absolutely no signs of struggle, absolutely no signs of forced entry at all. Uh, They did have an alarm system that was functional, but obviously it was not on at the time. We didn't know where Mrs. Derman was for almost 15 days. Obviously, with Mrs. Derman not being there, we had... uh, even though their ages and background I learned as quickly as I could at that time would not have indicated that Ms. Derman would have been a perpetrator. While we didn't rule out that she possibly was not involved in the murder, we also, because of all the factors of their age and things like that, we initially worked the case assuming that she had been abducted. But her body uh, surfaced about five and a half miles away down Lake Oconee near the dam. Actually, some fishermen saw it. We would have found it that day. At, at that point in time, I still I still had deputies and patrol boats patrolling the lake. We were still looking for the possibility of evidence connected with this, and uh, the body floated up. Mrs. Derman was hit two or more times in the head with a blunt object of some sort that penetrated her skull. Two times at least, maybe more than two uh, could have been a hammer, could have been a stick, could have been, you know, something like that. And Mr. Derman? Well, Mr. Derman died as a result of his head being removed. There's no doubt about that, but he wasn't alive when it was removed. If you've ever seen an arterial wound, you <laughs> trust me, uh, a severed artery, unfortunately, if you've ever been in the situation, and I have on more than one occasion, uh, it leaves a lot of blood in a lot of different places, and uh, that did not exist. But you could tell by the wound itself whether a person was dead. When you, when you die, your heart's not pumping anymore, you know? so the blood, blood doesn't flow like that. The blood that was present in the garage was blood that uh, drained out of the carapsal cavity, I guess is the proper term, you know, where the head was onto the floor. The pathologist, as a result of examining the body, can tell you absolutely for certain that he was dead when the head was cut off. Did he have any other wounds besides the decapitation? There was a slight wound on on one of the hands, probably a defensive wound of some sort. We had a little bit of trouble here and there in this case. You know, uh, I hate to get, you know, I'm not much of a TV man, but, you know, this program 48 hours, uh, having worked many, many, many murders in my career, many homicides, uh, 
that uh, saying in 48 hours is a very true true thing. Uh, we are relatively certain they were killed on Saturday, and we know for a fact we didn't get the call till 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. That's one factor. We have absolutely no witnesses that saw anything. The immediate next-door neighbor was uh, in Asia at the time. They lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. There was no house on the other side. Now, these, and I want you to understand that, that I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say a third of the homes, even though these are million-dollar homes and things like that, a third of these homes are not full-time residents. Decapitation murders are, hell, they're not five or six in this country in a year. And in the last three years, there's only been one where the head was removed and not at the scene uh, besides this one. And uh, at least the, the best of our investigative abilities, that's what we've learned of. And listen, we've stayed on top of them pretty pretty close, but that, that's a rarity in itself. So I knew the minute I saw that, that, uh, that this was going to be a different case. That uh, seems almost like somebody took it as a trophy. It does, but professionally, and I can't articulate at this point in time why I think so, but I don't think that's what happened. Uh, I think that whoever took it took it to prevent us from finding evidence in it. You know, a lot of these things, decapitations and things like that, they're sending out a message, they're positioning the body. You know, they, you know that, that wasn't the case. The body's just kind of laying there, have, you know, where it dropped, you know. They did not want anybody to find this body for a while, whoever did it. They'd taken some towels and stuff and kind of made a little dam to keep the blood from running out up under the garage door where it would have been seen from the outside. So they didn't want anybody to know. And obviously, they, whoever did this, certainly thought that we would never find Ms. Dermott. That takes away from the professional aspect of somebody, a professional killer, because of professional killer a lot of things would have been different but they would have known that body would have still been able to come up too is it possible that the head contained evidence in the nature of maybe a bullet yeah absolutely it could have contained dna there could have been some sort of scuffle you know i mean i'm sure you've been like me you've been in a fist fight before and you didn't like on television when you hit somebody's head with your hand usually you'll get a cut your blood may end up on there too you know you know, I, thought, I think recently of the Grinstead case that took 12 years before somebody made a call and identified two people that uh, I'm sure that the GBI and other law enforcement agencies that were involved in that investigation did everything in the world they could. It's my understanding, you know, that these people that they arrested weren't even on the radar initially. And uh, I think that's what I'm going to have to have here. I'm, I'm confident more than one person was involved in this. And, uh, what I need is that I need that same kind of phone call. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Those of you who followed our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, in the case of Tara Grinstead, know that in every cold case, time is your worst enemy. As the years go by and no new information surfaces, the likelihood of ever solving the case becomes more and more slim every day. But as Sheriff Sill says, all it takes is that one phone call, that one piece to this puzzle that can completely change the trajectory of the investigation. Somebody out there knows something. They know what happened to the Dermans. And one phone call, just one, could lead to the arrest and potentially conviction of the person or persons responsible 
for this act of savagery. To get that phone call, that one piece of valuable information, oftentimes you've got to shake the trees and you've got to keep the case from going any colder and keep it alive in the media. So what can he do to get this case moving again? Well, I caught up with an old friend of mine named John Dawes. John investigates cold cases for a living and he's been doing it for a very long time. And as it just so happens, he's very familiar with the Lake Oconee murders. I've been involved in cold case work, even in my active career with the Cobb County Police Department. I had been there for a long time and started pulling out cold cases in 2009 and actually brought one to uh, to an arrest pretty quick. And then when I retired from the Cobb County Police Department in 2013, I was contacted by the current district attorney, Vic Reynolds. Uh, he had an idea to start a cold case unit that would work out of the district attorney's office, a little bit different from your average cold case unit. We're not, yeah. not embedded in one agency. We can actually assist all seven agencies inside Cobb County. So uh, he asked me if I would consider running that for him. I told him I would be glad to do that. So I started doing a cold case solely in February 2014. A case becomes cold when it's sat for 12 months. Uh, that's the typical definition for a cold case is, is 12 months with no activity and no forward movement toward the goal of identifying a suspect and bringing it to prosecution. But the first thing that I want to look at is the evidence to make sure that it's still held and it's been properly protected and, and there's a good chain of custody on it. And I want to see what's available because of, you know, technology grows daily. And we found that we can do a lot of things with evidence that's been sitting for years and years uh, that couldn't be tested. The other things that you can do is, is old school detective work. Maybe not so much in a year, but over the course of some years, witnesses, parties to the incident itself sometimes have a change of heart and a change of mind, change their lifestyle a little bit, and they're more willing to uh, talk truth about the case than they were when it occurred. Tell us a little bit about what an investigator who finds themselves at a dead end might feel when they feel like they just can't bring justice to a victim's family and they can't provide answers to the community. It's literally sickening. First of all, if you're what I call a real homicide detective, you live that case. You eat it, you breathe it, you sleep it. It's uh, You become a family member and you're contacted by the family. I have three cases uh, from my active law enforcement pre-retirement days that were unsolved and, and one of them is is now 22 years old as of a few weeks ago and I still hear from that family and, and they're glad that I'm that I'm running the cold case unit and I still am looking at it uh, but it's it's a sick feeling that you've initially I think uh, when you get to a year mark where you haven't solved it you you are confident that you have done everything that you can do. But as the years go on, you begin to question yourself. You begin to look at things and say, well, maybe if I had done this or if I had done this differently. So it causes a lot of unrest. It, it loses sleep, headaches, uh, high blood pressure, uh, family problems. It's, uh, it's very, very difficult for a homicide detective to accept that, uh, that you haven't found the slip up that the bad guy made. Let's assume you have a case that there's not a lot of forensic evidence in the sense of DNA. 
maybe you've got some blood spatter and things like that that might tell you physically how something happened but doesn't necessarily point to where would you go next who would you start looking at first Uh, on a case like that you automatically go to family and that's a part of the victimology you hope that the victimology the background of the victims tells you something uh, to give you a direction to head in i'm talking about uh, criminal history backgrounds financial backgrounds investment backgrounds business owner backgrounds, partnerships, associations. There are a lot of things that you can glean from interviewing family and doing your background searches. The technology that's available today is overwhelmingly wonderful. On a small percentage of cases, it's a great assistant, but it all goes back to old school detective work, beating on the the doors and and knocking through the bushes trying to find answers. Uh, So I would go first to victimology from the crime scene. There's a percentage of people out there who, through their own selfish motives, bring injustice. And they, for their own selfish reasons, they'll take the life of another. So what is the motive for murdering these two old people? Is it financial gain for someone? Is it repayment of a debt to someone? Somebody has a motive that's close-knit in that group. My first guess, not knowing in the case any more than I do, these people lived in a nice house on a nice piece of property. They they obviously had either good financial means or a tremendous amount of debt. In this case, Mr. Derman's head was removed after he died. Does that surprise you? That's a message. If his identity is easily known uh, because... Uh, his body is there. I, I don't know whether or not his head remained on the scene near his body or was removed. Uh, but some people would think, well, that way his dental records can't be checked if the head is gone. But his identity can be established by other means. So I think that a postmortem decapitation separating the head is a message to who would find the body. Any number of things are, are possibilities, whether it was to deter identification um, which doesn't seem likely with a post-mortem decapitation, if that's the facts of the case. Ballistics is a, is a potential possibility. The exchange of touch DNA is a, is a potential possibility, but I like to look more at probability, and I think the likely probability is the shock factor for the person who finds that body. In terms of this case or in cold cases in general, when all the rocks that you have to look under have been looked under and you've left no stone that you're aware of unturned what can you do Uh, that's when you you turn to other people other agencies to keep having a different set of eyes look at it and there are any number of veteran detectives with agencies all over the place one of the ways that we formed the unit that i have working for me and my my people are all volunteering their time But we've got uh, a person who's pretty much an expert in crime scene documentation. We've got someone who's an expert in interviews and interrogations. We have someone who's kind of an expert in report writing. We We have a narcotics professional, investigation professional. So we have a lot of different people who bring a different aspect to each and every case that we open up. So my suggestion When you reach that point that you have gone through it and gone through it and gone through it and you're satisfied that you've looked at everything, that's when you need a complete 
fresh set of eyes. To truly understand this case and its complexity, you need case files. You need access to those case files. And in the state of Georgia, the open records law states that usually you can't have it. Law enforcement tends to keep it to themselves if there's an open investigation. As a former police officer, I can tell you that oftentimes pride will get in your way. It's your job to assure that the cases get solved. So you withhold certain information to give yourself an investigative edge. For example, sometimes investigators know that there are certain things that only the criminal could possibly know, so they'll never release that. But sometimes releasing information can generate interest. And generating interest could generate that one phone call that could be so desperately needed. But what if you still just can't solve it? And you can't solve it for years. Are you doing more harm by keeping these case files from the public? What if they, the public, has the answer? Every law enforcement agency and every officer, quite frankly, they're different. And Sheriff Howard Sills himself, the elected sheriff, is still in charge of this case. Georgia's open records laws don't require Sheriff Sills to keep anything to himself. He could publish it all. For the first time in the three years that this case has been pending, Sheriff Sills has agreed to meet with the Sworn Podcast and open up his case file in the Lake Oconee murders. So we arranged to meet at his office, and I decided to bring along a good friend of mine, and probably of yours, Payne Lindsay from Up and Vanished. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Good to see you. It's kind of weird, you know, riding out here this close now to where this awful murder took place. And it just makes me wonder what we're going to find when we get out here. You know, the sheriff was real inviting on the phone, Payne, and he told us that, you know, he's basically going to open up his file to us. That's so different than your experience with Up and Vanish with the police file. Oh, it's definitely different. I mean, I would love to have a case file in Terry Grimstead's case. I don't know what we're going to get into when we get out here. I really don't know what to expect. But when the lead investigator, who happens to be the county sheriff, says, come out here and look at my file, that's just something I can't, I can't turn down that opportunity. I'm Philip Holloway. I'm here to see Sheriff Seals. He's expecting me. Yes, sir. Philip Holloway. Mr. Holloway? Yes, sir. Hey, how are you? I'm Philip Holloway. How are you doing? Nice hey, to meet hey, you. Hey, Lindsay. How are you doing? Hey, doors left. What I've got is I've got a PowerPoint now, Philip. I'm going to show you all pictures of everything. It was frustrating uh, more than anything else. Uh, you got two uh, horrific murders here that, of elderly people that occurred in my county, and I haven't been able to uh, figure out who did it yet. And three years is a long time. The George Supreme Court said many years ago that the office of sheriff carries with it the duty to preserve the peace, protect the lives, persons, property, health, and morals of the people. 
Now that kind of says it all. That's your duty. I'm not some hired city police officer that has the authority to do something. I'm not a state patrolman that has the authority to do something on public roadways. I'm the sheriff with the duty to protect this community. This is the Derman residence on Carolyn Drive in the Great Waters uh, section of Reynolds Plantation here in Putnam County out on Lake Oconee. We've used this with other law enforcement agencies only. This has never been shown to the public. The garage was a little bit of a lower level. And so when the people who found them, when they first opened that door, that's what they saw. Which is nothing. You see the two cars and you see the garage doors closed. The cars look very clean. It's a hell of a lot cleaner than my garage is at my house. When the man who found Mr. Derman's body, when he saw that, he walks on down. And as you will see, this is what you'd see. Oh, my. This is... I just, I'm speechless. When I walked back there and I saw that body there and then I didn't see the head, I was scared that I was going to be sitting here three years later not knowing who did this. Next time on Sworn. A professional killer will come in your house with a 22 or a 22 Magnum and shoot you in the head and leave. They're not going to cut your damn head off get to hear exclusive details from the crime scene and a new lead that Sheriff Sills is still working on that may provide the key to solving the Lake Oconee murders. Sworn is produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. Story, production, and sound design by Payne Lindsay. Executive producers Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. And if you haven't yet, please check out our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, that follows the investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Sworn is mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you're in the market for podcast production, go to resonaterecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills and to John Dawes and to Christian Boone. And last but not least, I want to thank you, the listeners, for making Sworn the number one podcast on iTunes before it was officially released. If you haven't already, please head over to iTunes now to subscribe, rate, and review Sworn. And make sure you check us out online at SwornPodcast.com and follow us on social media at Sworn Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, at Phil Holloway ESQ on Twitter. When I see you, I see, I see blood in the water. Ooh, run deep, it runs deep, blood in the water. Ooh, I see, I see blood in the water. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy 
taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 